News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. There are still many questions that still need to be answered in this whole case of what happened to Kyle Beach and how much did the Chicago Blackhawks hierarchy know about all of this. What we do know right now is that the Blackhawks have been holding settlement meetings with Kyle Beach's attorney. Both parties have described those as civil and respectful. That doesn't mean, though, they agree on what needs to be done to get this completed. When it comes down to the legality of this case, how could each party, you know, try to win, I guess, on their side of things? So we thought, let's talk more about what's going on here, because this is a kind of fascinating microcosm of what's happening out there in the world today. Kyle Beach has changed everything in the NHL by talking so publicly about what happened to him. So how can the Blackhawks respond in kind to this? Well, joining us is legal expert and commentator Ari Goldkind. Thank you so much for joining us, Ari. Great to be on with you, Simi. Is this the kind of case right now, even though like we're talking sports here, we're talking the NHL, are a lot of, do you think, legal people looking at this to see what's going on? I think they are, and I think many legal people are keeping their mouths shut. Because, you know, I approach this as a criminal defense lawyer, as a lawyer who defends cases. And I have a very different view of all of this than I'd say 99.999, and then add a couple more nines, <laughs> to what you see on anti-social media. I do not look at this the same way. I have a zillion questions about this, a zillion questions about the firing and resigning of all of these officials. I have a zillion questions of what went on when Kyle Beach responded to an invitation to go for dinner and drinks to Aldrich's home. And uh, I can just start there. So I think your audience should know I don't approach this in the way I do as a political commentator on a whole bunch of topics that I discuss. I really do approach this as a criminal defense lawyer with questions that are not satisfactorily Yet, I emphasize, Simi, yet answered for me. Right, but see, the way you're approaching it, that's so interesting because I think the Chicago Blackhawks have to balance that, don't they, Ari? Because they have to think Uh, about how this is going to be perceived in the public, like, as you said, 99.9% of people versus legally protecting themselves. See, I don't think of it that way, Simi. I don't think the Blackhawks are acting in that way. I don't think the NHL is acting in that way. I don't think... Quenneville, or if that's how you pronounce it, is acting in that way, resigning as coach. I think this is just a reflection that Twitter and the courtroom of public opinion, which is anti-social media, steps in for people taking a deep breath, letting this all be examined. I appreciate there's a 107-page report that I don't think anybody has fully read uh, who's been pontificating about this. There are questions that in this Me Too era, and this is part of the Me Too era, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, you don't just have to talk about Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein uh, to make it part of the Me Too era. This is an incident that happened in 2010, and there are questions about it. There are terms that are being used that are eerily Weinstein-like. I can get to some of those in a moment. Right, but Ari, it is the public, and I know you're talking about anti-social media and stuff, but these are still the people who buy tickets. And at the end of the day, the Blackhawks need people to buy tickets. And if they don't like what they see, then they're not going to buy those tickets. And see, that's where I don't think that story is complete. I don't know exactly what happened in that apartment. And if the Blackhawks came out and said, look, 
This is what the assault complaint is. I don't think right now, Simi, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that 95% of people talking about this know what the actual accusation in that apartment is. I just don't think they do. Now, you've had it be clearly released that there was an invitation to dinner and drinks. And no, nobody would think that I'm saying that just because there's an invitation to dinner and drinks means anything non-consensual or unwilling should happen. So let's get that out of the way, okay? Period. But as a criminal defense lawyer, I want to know more. And if you think, Simi, and there's a bunch of elections last night in the United States. I saw that, yeah. Sort of back, yeah, well, that backs up a little bit of this. That if you think that if the Chicago Blackhawks said, look, we're not prepared to fire everybody at this point. We're not prepared to this. We're asking questions. I don't agree, Simi, that the entire Chicago Blackhawks season ticket base and casual fans would stop going to games if questions were asked that I think should be asked. And by the way, Simi, even if that were the case, that they would lose some fans. To me, as a criminal defense lawyer, truth questioning always has to carry the day. And that, I know, is an unpopular opinion. I think you're right. That's a very unpopular opinion. I think it's I'm the okay reason. With it. It's I know, but that's you're a lawyer, and you're okay with that because you've probably gotten that. That's why you're a lawyer, right? You've been doing this for a long time. I think for most of us, for me anyway, this case is really more about the the moral and ethical dilemma by the fact that somebody came to you and said this has happened to them, and you did nothing. And I think we all put ourselves in that place, and we think. Sure. I want. I would want somebody to help me if something happened. So it's much more basic, I think, than the legalese that you're getting into. So no, 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 I'm not getting into the legalese. So let me address that because I agree with you on that. You and I have common ground. If Kyle Beach went to the Chicago Blackhawks in 2010, okay? Now remember, not 2021, in 2010 and said the following, Mr. Aldrich sexually assaulted me. I was essentially in some way raped in some way. And by the way, that does happen between men. So a lot of people have said to me, oh, that that doesn't apply. Yes, it does. If Mr. Beach was sexually assaulted, not an unwanted sexual advance, not harassment, as some in the Blackhawks organizations have asserted, okay? There's a big difference between an unwanted sexual advance and a sexual assault. And if Beach said that to the Blackhawks and they said, look, We're not touching this with a 10-foot pole until the playoffs are over. We're not getting rid of anybody until the playoff run is over in June. That's part of the allegation, Simi. Then I completely, completely, 100% agree with you. And let me go a step further. Hold on. Let me also just point out here. We we also know that the Blackhawks had a policy, and it was a well-known policy, of no socializing between the coaches and the players outside. And that's where I'm going, which is, again... I want to know more about the dinner and drinks invitation that Beach accepted to go to Aldrich's. And I want to know more about what happened. Now, people can get mad, and that's just fine. Okay, (laughs) I actually don't care, Simi. I do an unpopular job, and I'm very comfortable doing it. I want to know more about the text messages that the Blackhawks saw between Aldrich and Beach. I want to know more about what the premise of that evening was. It may be, Simi, let me be clear. It may be as nefarious as many people say it is. It may be that Beach was fired, that if he doesn't, not fired, threatened, that if he doesn't do X, Y, or Z, there's go. And if that's the case, right. all the power in the world to be. And here's a part of the story that nobody talks about, Simi, and I'm going to lean over to your side for a moment. 
and nobody's talking about it. Because of the silence here, I'll be quick about it because I don't know what time we have. Because of the silence about what the Blackhawks did, if everything Beach says checks out, if everything you say is accurate, and I'm not saying it's not, I just ask questions. Aldrich, by everybody looking the other way, or Beach not going to the police, or the Blackhawks not calling the police. By the way, that's a relevant part of the story yeah. about the police not being called. Exactly. And again, you're not allowed to talk. But you're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to ask why Beach didn't call the police. You're going to get people saying he couldn't do it. Survivor this. I, agree. I understand all that. We don't have time to get into the nuance of it. If it's a sexual assault, even if it's 2010, the police should be called. There were probably many reasons that people on all sides, all sides, Simi, didn't call the police. But here's the thing. Years later, because Aldrich, if he got away with this and if he was guilty, Aldrich in Michigan as somebody working in a high school, and most people don't know this to me, got convicted, convicted of fourth-degree sexual assault mm-hmm. of a minor. And that's such an important part of the story. Yes, that it the, is. That the, that's right, and nobody talks about it. And the silence of the Blackhawks organization, or even perhaps Beach in not calling the police. Oh, no, no. He, know you're not allowed to talk. He talked about that. He did talk about that interview with Rick Westhead. He was quite open about how he felt about that. I think it's the Blackhawks that haven't talked about that. But Ari, yeah. you're right about the time. We are all out of it. We got to go. There you go. But thank you no so problem. much for joining us. Good to talk to you. Soon. That was a fascinating conversation. That's Ari Goldkind, legal com- expert and commentator, talking about the Kyle Beach Chicago Blackhawks legal settlement talks that are going on right now. Ari's not involved in them, but as a as a lawyer, he's talking about the perspective, the questions that he would ask, and he knows, as he said, a lot of that perspective would not be popular with ninety nine point nine percent of the people, which I think shows that fine line that the sides are walking here to try to get this done. We'll continue to update you as well. Now, coming up next, will not requiring school staff to be vaccinated make parents more nervous about sending their kids to school? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, brace yourself as if you haven't had enough sticker shock at the grocery store already in the past year, it's about to get worse. The Canadian Dairy Commission is recommending an 8.4% increase in prices, and that will take effect February the 1st. So what does this mean? Where did it come from? Well, joining us now is Sylvain Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So this sounds like it's a record-breaking price hike. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, the last record was, was I think, a few years ago at 4.5%. So that's almost double the previous record. So it, it, um, it's a bit of a shocker for, for Canadians, probably. I wasn't overly surprised by the, by the increase just because of what's going on around the world. It's, it's getting complicated out there. However, I've always been concerned about how forthcoming the um, Crown Corporation is, which is the Canadian Dairy Commission. Uh, it's when you read their reports, uh, and, and the report is actually posted on a website, it's very cryptic. There's no raw data. Uh, there's, uh, there's little uh, information about uh, how they work the pricing formula. It's, it's quite ambiguous, and, and because it's a crown corporation uh, which exists to protect consumers, it's not there to support farmers. It's actually there to support Canadians, <laughs> and they're charged with the task of setting a fair price for farmers, that's the mandate there. Uh, it, they've never been actually be clear in terms of how they come up with these percentages. 
So we don't know, like they're saying it's COVID related and, and pandemic and all of that, but really what are the increases here for? So in their uh, 300 word press release, which was posted on Friday night, uh, it says that uh, feed costs and energy costs are, are the culprits. And um, I mean, I, it, it's believable. Uh, of course, uh, when you look at uh, grain markets, uh, it is costing more for uh, for farmers to feed their uh, their animals, uh, and of course with energy, I think everyone is is fully aware that uh, energy is actually costing more with with winter coming, heating barns and everything else. Uh, my my concern with with such a jump, uh, and we've seen this before, is that processors, uh, companies who actually buy industrial milk, will just be tempted to go south and buy American milk a quarter of the price. And uh, and so that's kind of, it defeats the purpose. Right now, Canadian industrial milk is the most expensive in the world already. But can you imagine uh, if with a with a jump of eight point four percent a few years ago, uh, increases really got companies to go south and they stopped the practice, of course. But uh, my 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 guess is that they could do that and we could actually sue. We could see a a reduction in quota and see many farms disappear, including in BC. Do you think this is going to start up that conversation again about changing the system? Well, I mean, less than a year ago, we actually uh, released um, Supply Management 2.0, a roadmap to a better future for supply management. And uh, in, uh, in that report, we recommended to keep the quota system but the one thing that needs to change is the Canadian Dairy Commission. It's governance and, uh, of course, uh, how they manage the pricing formula. You see, uh, the three people heading the Canadian Dairy Commission are linked to the dairy sector. And the way it behaves, very much a lobby group. The, both the Canadian Dairy Commission and the powerful dairy lobby are one. And that it shouldn't be that way. Uh, Canadians weren't, I don't think, were aware of what the CDC does until this week. I'm happy that this is coming out, uh, but I think the, the starting point for reform is to change the CDC. Right. And so do you think when, once consumers see that price hike, because in a sea of all these other price hikes, also concerns about inflation, this one feels like, Sylvain, it's really going to hit people in the pocketbooks. That's right. So fluid milk is uh, likely to rise. Of course, it, all, it always depends on what grocers want to do at the, in, in the dairy section. Uh, they may actually use milk as a loss leader, but at 8.4%, that, that's a lot. Uh, that's a lot to absorb. So we are expecting fluid milk to, to go up in price significantly. But with, with dairy products, there's a multiplier effect. You need several liters of milk to produce, say, one kilos of cheese. So we are expecting dairy products to go up in price by maybe 15%. And so guess what's going to happen? We're importing a lot of products from, from the United States, from Europe. And, and those products, uh, which seem to be expensive now, will be seen less expensive yeah. <laughs> next year. So, so that's, that's the thing about, about increasing prices like this. It's a bit irresponsible. So we need to give a voice to processors the restaurant owners, all the pizzerias in your neck of the woods uh, will have a problem uh, paying their bills. They're going to have to increase their 
their prices because cheese represents half of the cost to make a pizza. Really? Half the cost? Yes. 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 So if you talk to a a person who actually manages a pizzeria, you'll tell that person will tell you cheese is a big deal. So that's why Restaurants Canada is very upset with the recommendation given by the CDC. Is there any inclination, Sylvain, that this is this price increase might be something that the government would step in on given the strain on Canadian consumers already? The CDC is the government. It's a crown corporation, Simi. It's owned by us, all of us. So obviously, this is why governance needs to change. The government can actually step in and reform the CDC. We own it. Right. So but, that's what I'm wondering. Will this give them the incentive then? Like, if there's a lot of outrage about this, which I have a feeling there will be, is that enough of a political reason now for the government to say, maybe we need to change this? I don't think so. No politician uh, in Canada is willing to do anything about supply management or the CDC. Look at what happened to Maxime Bernier. Well, I mean, a lot, let's, let's, let's be clear, a lot's happened to Maxime Bernier, but you're talking about his original support of getting rid of the supply-side situation. He, so, of course, he, he, he went kind of sideways yeah. <laughs> uh, the last few years, but initially, a few years ago, he was uh, up against Andrew Scheer for the leadership of the PC party. He lost that race because of the dairy lobby. I mean, basically, that's it. And since then, but, uh, nobody actually... No politician, no senators would dare mention anything about supply management. Right. But given what's happening right now, if a Canadian, there's nothing, you know, worse than the Canadian consumers getting upset. If you see an almost 10% increase across the board for milk and cheese, uh, that is that not enough? Do you think enough anger there if that happens to make a government, any government say, all right, we better do something to save ourselves here? They spend $150 million a year in advertising in Canada, dairy farmers. It's the largest uh, uh, advertising budget in Canada right now. They fund a lot of politicians. They're very powerful. I highly doubt I'm very cynical, but here's the thing, Simi. Uh, by 2030, if nothing changes, we're going to lose half of our dairy farms in Canada. And the last people who want to save the dairy industry are dairy farmers themselves because they'll cash out regardless. They'll get their millions, and that's why there's no incentive. No one is incentivized to actually save the dairy sector. That's the problem. All right. Listen, Sylvain, thank you so much for your time this morning. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Sylvain Charlebois, who is the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, talking about the dairy price increase that is coming our way February 1st, maybe even earlier, 2022. Let me know your thoughts. Simi at cknw.com. Is it time to completely upend system and the way we produce dairy in this country? You can also call our buzz line on. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, it is Carbon Monoxide Awareness Week. What does that mean to you? Well, it means you better listen up because Raji Sohal has some tips for you. Raji, when was the last time you checked your carbon monoxide detector? Oh, Simi, I learned a lot doing this piece. I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time since I've tested it. I don't know when I last tested it, to be quite frank. So these devices, they last for about 10 years 
And you're supposed to test them regularly. So few people do. And in fact, a survey that was uh, just completed, the results came back that 72% of respondents who have gas appliances of those ones, um, yeah, almost no, 72% of people who have gas appliances, 50% of those ones don't have a detector at all. What? Yeah. And what's going on is that people, uh, you know, they assume that it's not that much of a threat, uh, the issue of carbon monoxide. It's one of these silent killers in that you can't taste it, you can't smell it. There's no way of knowing um, that there's been a leak in the house without one of these detectors. Although uh, it's been said that some pets, including dogs and cats, uh, tend to show more lethargy uh, before human beings do when they when there is um, some kind of a leak. Um, but if you have a gas uh, requiring um, appliances in the house, then you're at, you're at risk and you must have one of these detectors. They're only about $30 these days. I think I the last time I bought one, um, yeah, I think that I spent more than that. But now they make them so easy that you can just plug them straight into the wall or you can um, get ones that are just uh, operable by battery. And a lot of them uh, you can just bring with you, which was something that I never thought of. Uh, I talked to uh, Dean Schmitka, the Senior Safety Officer of Incident Investigation at Technical Safety BC, and he told me that he brings his carbon monoxide detector with him when he goes on vacation. And he also said, you need to have one on every floor of your house. Not something I was aware of either. Um, and that uh, having them, sometimes people think that, okay, if I don't have one, um, my air filtration system can scrub out the carbon monoxide in the house. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> uh, it can't scrub out the carbon monoxide whatsoever. One of the reasons he told me that so few people actually have carbon monoxide detectors is because a lot of people rent and they assume that it would already be installed by the landlord uh, if it's that important, like a smoke detector. And I inquired about the rules around that. And he said, look, safety is everybody's responsibility. If you're a renter and there isn't a carbon monoxide detector in your home, whether that's a condo or a house, just get one, you know, at only $30. Carbon monoxide is, is known as the, the silent killer. It, it's invisible, it's, it's tasteless, it's odorless. Uh, you can be around it and not know it's there. So it can be, it can be quite serious. It can car um, cause serious harm and, and even death in some circumstances. Some typical signs of carbon monoxide exposure include things like headaches, dizziness, flu-like symptoms, uh, nausea, vomiting, uh, chest pains. So um, it can it can mimic other other conditions. So an important part is is having people be aware that if they are experiencing symptoms to suspect that carbon monoxide might be a cause. That's the tough part, right there, Raji, because the symptoms are so. You know, if you feel a little sick, you feel tired, you get sleepy, and people might be willing to dismiss that. Yeah. And uh, this was another thing that I learned um, just from this little interview was that um, you can get it in your garage if you're, say, for example, cooking in your garage as people do when they have like people coming over and they're cooking for a lot of folks, they might have the garage door open. So they think, oh, I'm getting enough oxygen in here. I'm getting right. enough airflow in here. But uh, a lot of people get carbon monoxide poisoning in 
their garage or while they're cooking on a barbecue and that kind of thing. Um, so everyone go out there and get your detectors and uh, check out yes. the the Technical Safety BC website for some more information on that. Good advice. Thank you for that, Raji. It's our Raji Sohal. Please check your carbon monoxide detector this week. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news, BC's largest school district will not be mandating COVID-19 vaccines for staff. The Surrey School District decided against that. They feel that schools are at low risk for transmission, and they believe the message that they have heard from public health officials is that they don't need to implement a vaccine mandate. We also know other school districts feel very differently about this. Well, to talk more about this issue, joining us now is Terry Mooring, who is the president of the BC Teachers Federation. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Timmy. Thanks for having me. Now, I know when we've talked to you in the past, Terry, you've talked about wanting and supporting the idea of this vaccine mandate. But what do you think about Surrey's decision? Well, I'm, I'm not surprised. Uh, there was a promise um, on behalf of the provincial government to provide resources and guidance to districts who wanted to do this. And really, in reality, what was produced is a roadmap that really just tells districts that they need to get legal opinions, they need to protect privacy. Like, there just isn't a lot of supports or resources contained within the document. And so districts really, you know, in every single way, need to really go it alone. Um, We disagree with that approach, of course. We think it needs to be provincial and that there needs to be um, that kind of provincial systematic approach to it where it's the same everywhere. Um, and that, you know, appears not to be a reality either. So I can't say I'm surprised, and I think it'll impact other districts making these decisions as well. Right. Why do you think that this is the approach that's being taken? Well, you know, we've heard from the provincial government that um, school districts are the employers and the provincial government, you know, really can't impose a provincial mandate. We we think that there must be kind of some kind of legislative solution to this, so we're not too sure about that. And it appears that public health, um, you know, won't be instituting um, a a mandate that would, you know, be the simplest solution, of course, across the province. Um, But and what we're seeing is a lot of mixed messages. On one hand, we are hearing uh, from public health. Undoubtedly, we have through the entire pandemic that schools are safe. On the other hand, we know that there are clusters that are happening in schools that are going unreported. And so we heard, you know, that interior health. Um, had 80 clusters a little while ago. None of them were reported. And so we still are very concerned about the fact that data is not forthcoming from the local health authorities, especially in Northern Health, where there's not a clear picture at all being painted about what's actually happening in schools. Um, and, and, you know, we're, and we're told consistently that, that schools are safe. And so I'm not at all surprised that the mixed messaging and the lack of support from the provincial government really do all align to, you know, end up having school districts decide not to impose a mandate. Right. Do you think school districts, do they need the cover? Do they need the provincial government to say to them, you must do this? Well, I think it's really tough in school districts where there is a lot of pushback against any of the safety measures. I think there's a lot of pressure put on individual trustees in those situations. And I also think that, you know, districts differ in their capacity to hire lawyers to put in place, you know, fairly sophisticated um, programs so that privacy, health privacy of of school staffs are protected. It's not easy. And certainly the Surrey School District has the most capacity in the province. And if they're deciding not to do it, then I think other districts will look at that and decide, you know, similarly. 
So what do you hear from teachers on this, Terry? Like, obviously, there are still some teachers who are not vaccinated as well. So do you hear a lot from them? So, you know, teachers have shown time and time again that we're doing our part to keep everyone in the system safe. And so 94% um, of teachers have been vaccinated and a further 1% have received their first dose and plan to get their second dose. So that will soon be 95% of teachers who are vaccinated, which is far above the provincial averages, of course. And so time and time again, um, you know, teachers are showing that. Uh, there are There is definitely a segment of our population that is concerned about the mandates. And, you know, there's lots of reason to be concerned, which is why we needed it to be and, and still think it needs to be a provincial um, where, you know, there is clear legal support provided if necessary, because, you know, we don't doubt that these mandates um, are going to be challenged somewhere in Canada um, and potentially in B.C., um, and, and they also need some structures in place to protect privacy. There are some, you know, real concerns around that. And they're absolutely valid. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's why we don't think it should be rolled out district by district. Is this about potentially being worried that a mandate would leave a district, you know, one district perhaps a sh- with a shortage of teachers? Well, that's making an assumption that, you know, teachers would be put on um, unpaid leave, similar to what's happening in other places. And yet there are other ways to approach a mandate, including rapid testing. And so, you know, there... But we haven't done that, right? Like, it seems to me that every vaccine mandate we've had for occupations in this province has meant you get put on leave. That's true. However, that's not necessarily the case. And that's not the case in every jurisdiction either. In New Brunswick, there's um, going to be rapid testing as a part of it as well. And so there are ways to impose a mandate that do not necessarily mean that employees have to be on unpaid leave. Um, And so, you know, those possibilities are out there. Um, And, you know, we have an, an extreme teacher shortage in B.C., Uh, And so those concerns about um, having fewer folks in the workforce are absolutely valid. And so that's why some sort of rapid testing regime would be definitely uh, something that should be looked at. Right. But how is that a mandate then? What is the consequence for people not getting a vaccine? Well, what we're seeing in other jurisdictions um, is that regular weekly testing uh, needs to occur for people that aren't vaccinated. And I'm just pointing this out as a possibility um, because there are, you know, a a number of things that could happen again, though. (laughs) um, It would need to be the same across the entire province. You couldn't have different sorts of, of policies in place in different districts. And again, that's the concern is that we actually have a provincial system here um, and, and, and teachers within that system and, and staff within that system need to be treated similarly. That's why a district by district mandates just really won't work. So how do we change that? Situation? What is the message that you have then to teachers? I mean, 94%, that's still a ways to go. Yeah, I mean, we're still encouraging all teachers to be vaccinated. It is critical. Um, but like other, you know, populations, other populations of workers, you know, we have a very small percentage. In our case, it's 2% that really uh, seem to be dug in um, and, you know, uh, not wanting to be vaccinated, not planning to be vaccinated. Um, we're starting to see that change, though, in parts of the province as we see things like hockey coaches or I should just say coaches needing to be vaccinated, needing to be vaccinated for travel. You know, there is a segment of our population that won't be vaccinated until 
something that they want to do is being impacted. And so as those mandates roll out in other sectors, um, they will have an impact on everyone in terms of their, you know, getting vaccinated. Um, but, you know, how long is that going to take is the other side of it. So. Right. So, Terry, if, if a teacher, is, as you say, is absolutely dug in and doesn't want to get vaccinated, should they be allowed in a classroom with kids? Well, and that's the decision for the provincial government, uh, districts, and the provincial health authority. Those are the folks that can make these kinds of decisions. And, um, and they're the ones that, that need to make those decisions. It cannot be... Um, you know, individual districts as far as we're concerned. It needs to be a, a joint effort um, so that there is a similar role across the province and so that there are similar um, components to the mandate right. everywhere. So if the provincial mandate were, okay, you must get vaccinated or you get put on leave and you won't be in a classroom, would the BCTF support that? Well, we uh, have already said that we would support a mandate um, if it protects uh, our members' rights. If there's due process, if there's an appropriate timeline, if there is, you know, uh, really good communication to uh, folks about what could be the consequences. You know, we've already sent out a letter to our members saying if you're not vaccinated, there could be some potential uh, consequences coming and that could impact your pension, your wages, your benefits. So we've already put that out to our members. And, um, you know, we think we're doing what we can to really push folks to get back vaccinated. And so, but we can only go so far because we're not the employer, we're not the provincial government, nor are we the health authorities, so. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. Okay, so thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. This is a huge story. You've been hearing about it in the news. That BC will be working with First Nations to limited harvest ancient, rare, and priority large stands of trees within 2.6 million hectares of BC's most at-risk old-growth forests. So essentially, this is a way to protect old growth in our province, but there are a lot of ifs here, a lot of things that still have to happen, a lot of negotiations, a lot of agreements that still have to happen to make that a certainty. Now, these are recommendations that were provided in the old growth strategic review, but let's talk more about this, the impact of this. Joining us now is Katrina Conroy, who's the Provincial Minister of Forests, Lands, Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks, Simi. Good to be here. Can you give us an idea of the process of what went into this? So what we've done is, of course, as you said, you know, we're following the recommendations of the Old Growth Strategic Review. So the, my former colleague, Doug Donaldson, started that uh, back in uh, uh, 2019, and they uh, got the report in 2020. Um, so we're following those all 14 recommendations. We've committed to implementing them. We also brought in a technical advisory, advisory panel made up of independent scientists, ecologists, foresters, uh, which included Gary Merkel, who not only uh, is on the technical advisory panel, but he also co-wrote the Old Growth Strategic Review. So we've now, we've got maps from the, uh, the technical advisory panel, and they identify um, 2.6 million hectares of at-risk old growth, um, at-risk for irreversible loss in this province. And what we're doing now is we've shared those, the, the panel's information, we've shared the maps with First Nations that would, uh, that, whose traditional territory these deferred areas are on, 
and we've requested that they get back to us on whether or not they support the deferrals, whether they require further engagement and or they want to incorporate local and Indigenous knowledge, or, or if they would prefer to discuss deferrals through existing treaties or agreements, which there are a number in the province. And this approach is, is respects Indigenous rights, and, and it is consistent with the recommendations from the Old Growth Strategic Review. Okay, but this also still sounds like this is the beginning of the process and that there's a long way to go here to make this happen. Well, it's, I'd say we're halfway through the process because we've already deferred uh, uh, over 200,000 hectares in 11 areas across the province. We've been uh, implementing the uh, 14 recommendations from the Old Growth Strategic Review. This is our next step moving forward. Now, what about the job losses that could potentially arise from this? Like, how does the government deal with that? There could be a lot of forestry workers out of work. So our initial socioeconomic analysis shows that there could be up to 4,500 workers that could be impacted if all 2.6 million priority areas identified are immediately deferred. And that, that's a preliminary estimate. And we, what we're doing is we want to, to, you know, we're doing that government-to-government discussion with First Nations to confirm deferral areas. And once those deferral areas are, are decided, then we'll continue to examine the socioeconomic impacts of each of those areas. And we are going to ensure that there's a comprehensive package of supports in place for workers and communities. I'll, I'll tell you, Sammy, the difference, you know, in the, under the Liberal government, there was 30,000 jobs lost in the forest industry in this province, and there was no support to First Nations, there was no support to workers, and there was no support to communities. And we're going to do this differently. Okay, but there will be job losses, though, will there not? And how will the government deal with that? So as I said, we're going to have a suite of supports in place. Um, we're going to we've got a we're going to bring together a really a coordinated and, and comprehensive uh, package of, of plans that different ministries have been involved in. We're going to uh, create short-term employment opportunities in the sector. We're also going to connect workers if they'd like additional uh, training, education, and you know skills training opportunities that would, through advanced ed. We're going to provide funding to workers interested in bridging to retirement. And we did this in 2019 when there was a downturn in the forest industry, and it was overly subscribed. People wanted to do this, so we know that there is interest in this. And then we're, we're also looking at supports to communities because it's not just about the people that work in mills. It's about the communities that are, you know, that are forestry dependent and making sure we have supports for the communities and and looking at job creation through value-added forestry, made in BC manufacturing, and industry innovation. So we're we're looking at a a whole suite of programs to ensure we have those supports in place. Okay, but when you talk about the negotiations that still have to happen, there's a lot of them, right, with how many different Indigenous groups? Well, there's 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 204 nations in the province. Uh, Not all of them will have... uh, some of this 2.6 million hectares in their traditional territory, but we want to make sure that uh, we have those really important government-to-government discussions, and, and some of them have already started. We did share the uh, the maps with the nations, and 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 it's you know this what's really important is you know this is this is about true reconciliations. I mean, it's it's about respecting First Nations rights and title holders, and and recognizing their stewardship over land management in in their traditional territories, and so we need to make sure that we're listening to these First Nations that were trusting their stewardship of their territories. And some nations, they may choose to invest and, and pursue sustainable forestry activities on their lands, and, and some may choose to defer. What is the timeline like then on the supports? When can the forestry sector expect to hear more on that? Well, it depends on, on the decisions made on deferrals. So we want to make sure that right now we're looking at, at which areas are going to be deferred, and so then we will, once an area is deferred, we will have two years 
to work on, like, do that uh, socioeconomic analysis that looks at those communities, that looks at the areas, that looks at what the, you know, what the um, issues are and, and where people will need support. Um, looking at, uh, you know, making sure that we're, we've got supports in place with the nation and, and respecting that, uh, you know, they're, they're going to do their own land management uh, uh, analysis as well, uh, putting a, a land management plan in place, and, and some have already started that. So does that mean the supports will have to wait until the negotiation with a particular First Nations group has concluded and then you know what's going to happen on their land? Yes, because it's difficult to... I mean, we're not going to support unless we know that there's going to be a deferral, right? Right. You know, we, need, but, we need to know where the deferrals are going to be. But if the deferral is happening now while you're waiting with those negotiations, then aren't those supports also needed now? Well, there have been, with this process now, there have been no deferrals made. Right. What do you What do you feel when you hear that, you know, the Truck Loggers Association feels that this is going to result in what they say is immediate and long-term impacts on BC's forestry sector? Like, clearly there's a lot of concern out there. Yeah, yeah, of course there's concern, and that's why we've, we're going to have supports in place. And, you know, that's why we're, I mean, we're working with Indigenous nations, some who, who do harvest, some who are, you know, are involved in the forest industry and, and are going to continue that. And also they are looking at, you know, making sure that they're you know, involved in sustainable forest management to ensure that uh, there's, there is old growth on their traditional territory, but while also respecting the, the needs to, to harvest. So, you know, I... I it's also we've been talking about this for a while, and we've been talking to industry about this, and and some of industry has, has you know they've already taken the I'd say bull by the horns on the farm, but you know they, they they have taken the initiative to go and work with indigenous nations. They have taken the initiative to look at their um, where they are harvesting to you know do some sustainable harvesting to you know do some land management, and and that's that's critically important. Um, you know, we they've known about this, and and we want to continue to work with them because it, it's you know the the forests are like the forests don't belong to individual companies. The forests belong to the people of BC, and we want to make sure that everybody is benefiting from our forests, whether it's through harvesting, whether it's through you know climate change. You know, we got to look at clean water, clean air, all those things. You know, the biodiversity that forests bring, and that that's critically important, especially when you're you know you look at what's happening with climate change in our province. You know, our forests are, are key to that. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks, Simi. Really appreciate it.